0: this is gm word of the week and i'm fiddleback man in the moon we here at the word of the week have to confess something this podcast resides in a house of lies well not really a house of lies there's just one lie So it might be more apt to say the house in which this podcast resides is built on a foundation of one lie. But that's hardly poetic. And we know what you're thinking. You're thinking that this doesn't at all sound like a follow-up on the promise from the last episode about faces in the clouds and pareidolia and promises about gamblers and conspiracies and the moon. But don't worry. Those things are coming we haven't forgotten. That's not the lie we're talking about. Nor are we talking about the occasional use of an idiomatic phrase instead of a single word in the title of our various episodes. We're talking about a different lie. One that we tell not just occasionally, not just frequently, but one that we tell in every single episode. But our excuse is that we're only human. And this lie... Is hardwired into our very brains every episode we take a collection of random elements myths stories scientific facts historical accounts bits of literature snippets of pop culture and we connect them all to a single concept inspired by our favorite hobby fantasy role-playing games and in so doing we draw your attention to a complex web of interconnections between these things A pattern of causes and effects, and thus we convince you that we are uncovering important narratives hidden beneath the surface of the seemingly random miasma that is the sum total of human knowledge. But there aren't any patterns. Not really. We just bounce from topic to topic, whatever strikes our fancy, really. And we're good at highlighting and describing things in just the right way to make it seem like we're sharing some secret narrative thread that we started pulling from the wool sweater of pop fantasy. We're good at it because it's a very human thing to be good at. And you believe it because it's a very human thing to believe. Last week, we talked about the human propensity towards pareidolia. That refers to the tendency of humans to see familiar shapes, especially faces, in random objects or assortments of objects. But we got terribly distracted with a bunch of seemingly related but ultimately random topics, so we didn't get to explain that pareidolia is actually a sub-phenomenon of something even more human. But to describe it, we first need to discuss schizophrenia. Now, schizophrenia is a serious mental disorder. The name comes from the Greek for divided or split mind. Schizophrenia is a serious mental disorder which distorts the way a person thinks or perceives the world around them. It does not refer to having multiple personalities, however. That is called dissociative identity disorder. Schizophrenia is a type of psychosis. It's a mental illness that prevents the sufferer from telling the difference between what is real and what is imagined. As such, it can be very serious, and the severity varies from person to person, and schizophrenia can be episodic and cyclical. Thus, some sufferers can live relatively normal lives between episodes of schizophrenia. However, in many individuals, the cycles can worsen over time. The symptoms are generally broken into three groups. Positive, or things that happen as a result of schizophrenia. Negative, or things that stop happening as a result. And cognitive, or things that affect the way the brain functions. Positive symptoms include hallucinations and delusions and erratic or uncontrolled movements. Negative symptoms include the loss of focus, withdrawal from the world, and emotionlessness. Cognitive symptoms can include the inability to make decisions, organize thoughts, or memory problems. It goes without saying that schizophrenia can be pretty brutal. Once upon a time, psychologists had three distinct types of schizophrenia. There was the paranoid type, which was typified by feelings of persecution. Then there was the disorganized type, which was typified by a confused and incoherent subject. And then there was the catatonic type, in which the subject becomes utterly withdrawn to the point of being immobile and uncommunicative. But psychologists started to recognize other forms of schizophrenia as well. So they added an undifferentiated type, which was basically none of the above. And then they added a residual type, which was some other type of schizophrenia in which the symptoms have become diminished or just gone altogether. And finally they realized that it was better to just dispense with the types and treat each case individually based on its symptoms, since it really was a complex and varied illness. Now, schizophrenia has probably been with us since the dawn of time. The Egyptians, in their seminal work on mental and physical health, The Book of Hearts, described a number of symptoms typical of schizophrenia. But they really didn't understand which human parts did what, so they generally attributed schizophrenia as a disorder of the heart and uterus, probably being caused by human feces, poison, or demons. We should note that the Egyptians pretty much viewed the heart as the organ tied to emotions and thought and existence because it beats faster when you're in love or excited and because you die when your heart is removed. Which is a fairly good scientific conclusion for 5,000 years ago, so we won't fault them. But schizophrenia wasn't really identified as a distinct mental illness until 1887 by Dr. Emil Kraepelin. He was a German psychiatrist who is generally considered to be the father of modern psychiatric medicine. He called it dementia praecox, which translates to precocious madness, though it might be more apt to translate it as premature dementia. See, he basically saw it as the normal dementia of age, occurring in someone too young for that kind of thing. And it was a Swiss psychiatrist named Eugen Bluler, who, in 1911, realized that it was different from dementia and started cataloging the symptoms. And he named it schizophrenia. We should also note, for completeness, that in the past two decades we've discovered a lot of evidence that schizophrenia is a biologically based disease. We even have some very amazing images showing the rapid degeneration of physical brain tissue in schizophrenic patients and we're making great strides toward treating it and ultimately curing it. Well, not us personally, but, you know, doctors and scientists. But we bring it up because of another German, Klaus Conrad. In 1958, he was studying the onset of schizophrenia, especially where it involved paranoia. And what you have to understand is that paranoia isn't just a fear that the world is out to get you. It's actually a very complex set of self-supporting delusions. The subject not only believes that there are vast conspiracies against them, but that they are also important enough to be the target of such complex conspiracies. Over time, their brain builds very complex patterns of evidence that they are being targeted, and they gradually build up a framework of beliefs as to who is targeting them, and for what reasons, and how everyone is involved in this massive framework of conspiracy. And one of the things that Conrad presented in his 1958 paper on the beginnings of schizophrenia was that paranoia and similar delusions seemed to start with a runaway sense of building complex patterns of connections between unrelated things. And he coined a term for it, apophenia. What does it mean? Well, that's tricky, because it has been suggested by some that the word was misspelled, either in translation or by Conrad himself. If it really is apophenia, It would be derived from the Greek apo, meaning away or from, and phanion, meaning to appear. So it might mean to appear from. But if it was originally supposed to be apophrenia, then it would mean to come away from the mind. Either way, Conrad was referring to a runaway sense of pattern recognition. To see patterns in things that aren't at all related. To draw connections between random things. He was describing it in terms of the early stages of paranoid schizophrenia in which the mind starts to build connections and patterns out of the random minutiae of life. But the definition gradually expanded to describe a phenomenon that others had recognized ages ago. For example, David Hume, the philosopher, described the human tendency of human beings to project human qualities and patterns of behavior in everything around them. In his 1757 book natural history of religion he said we find human faces in the moon armies in the clouds and by a natural propensity if not corrected by experience and reflection ascribe malice and goodwill to everything that hurts or pleases us meanwhile the term apophenia now describes the human tendency to see patterns and connections where there are none And evolutionary biologists and psychologists don't see this as a bug, but as a feature. They suggest that as the human brain evolved, it was looking for connections between cause and effect. If something terrible happened and you survived it, you were more likely to keep surviving if you knew what caused the terrible thing to happen. And if something good happened, you were more likely to survive if you knew what caused the good thing to happen so you could make it happen again. In fact, this trait is so useful that the human brain may have evolved to err on the side of seeing a connection. Because the consequences of seeing a connection where none exists are not nearly as bad as missing a connection that does exist. It comes down to the difference between what statisticians call type 1 and type 2 errors. Basically, imagine you have an idea about how something might work. For example, you suspect that the government is putting fluoride in the water to weaken your resistance to mind-control signals. After all, you read about Project MK Ultra. You know how fluoride works. The easiest way to test an idea is try to prove the opposite idea. For example, you could test your water to see if it's free of fluoride. If it has no fluoride in it, you know your theory can't be true. That's called a null hypothesis. Now, if your water does have fluoride that doesn't prove your theory is true. It means you need to test further null hypotheses. But let's not go crazy. Now, an experimental result might come out wrong. There's always a chance, for example, you test the water and misread the testing apparatus or accidentally put your samples too close to your toothpaste and they get contaminated or something. So you might detect fluoride that isn't really in the water or you might miss fluoride that really is in your water. Statisticians call the first one, detecting something that isn't there, a type 1 error. It's also called a false positive because it leads you to reject the null hypothesis and therefore assume that your original idea hasn't been disproven. The other one, not detecting something that is there, that's a type 2 error, also called a false negative. Your brain evolved in a world where false negatives can kill you. But false positives probably won't kill you as much. And so it errs on the side of false positives. Thus, you tend to see patterns where none exist. Speaking of statistics, one example of apophenia at work is the so-called gambler's fallacy. This is the false belief that there is a pattern to the outcomes in some random event. For example, if you flip a coin 50 times and tails comes up every time... You might bet on heads because it's been so long since heads came up that one must be due. Even though the odds are still no better or worse than 50-50. Another example is the belief that if you roll your d20 on an unimportant or unnecessary roll, and a 20 comes up, you've wasted a crit. As if the die will only give out a certain number of natural 20s in a day. Another example of apophenia is confirmation bias. That's the tendency of people to lend more credence to evidence that supports what they already believe to be true than to contrary evidence. And it happens to everyone, even you. But one of the most intriguing forms of apophenia is pareidolia. The faces in the clouds thing. Or as Dave Hume mentioned, seeing the man in the moon. Yeah, that face you imagine gazing down from the heavens every night, that silver celestial orb is only visible because your brain has evolved a propensity toward paranoia. Sort of. Now, the moon has been around for a long time, almost as long as the earth has been around. And we've been staring up at it for as long as we've been writing about people with mental disorders caused by uterine ghosts. But much like schizophrenia... We've only recently come to understand it. Where it came from. The formation of the moon was actually a mystery for a long time. Some theorized that it had formed in the same way the Earth had, from the condensation of a cloud of debris. It basically formed as the Earth's little sister. Others theorized it had been a massive object from the outer solar system that had drifted our way and gotten caught in the Earth's gravity well. It wasn't until 1972, when the United States of America sent some people up there to gather some pieces of the moon, that we finally developed a solid theory of where the moon came from. When we got the moon rocks back from the Apollo moon mission, we made a few surprising discoveries. First, that the moon was slightly younger than the Earth. Second, it seemed to be made of the same rock as the Earth. Third, the moon had cooled from a molten blob of rock. And fourth, the moon was missing certain elements that were found in earth rocks. And this kind of ruined everything. The moon couldn't be younger than the earth if it formed at the same time. And it wouldn't be made of the same material as the earth's surface if it came from somewhere else after the earth formed. But the moon was also too old to be made out of the earth's surface because the surface didn't form until 200 million years ago... And the moon was older than that. It wasn't until 1975 that a theory emerged that explained all the details. It was put forward by William Hartman and Donald Davis of the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson, Arizona. And it went like this. 4.8 billion years ago, the Earth formed. Then, 4.5 billion years ago, When the Earth was still a chaotic mass of rock and lava, a giant rock that was whizzing around the infant solar system hit the Earth. And when we say giant, we mean the size of Mars. They named that poor rock, by the way. They called it Theia. Now, Theia hit the Earth at an oblique angle, and it blasted off a huge blob of molten Earth rock. Of course, the force of the impact vaporized certain volatile elements, which blasted off into space and were never seen again. And the really heavy stuff fell back down into the earth with a gloop. But the middling stuff collected in a ball of lava and settled into an orbit, a fast orbit, around the earth. And it cooled off and turned into a ball of earth rock. And that's the moon. And these days, that's pretty much the agreed-upon theory of where the moon came from. But we're not talking about the moon itself. We're talking about the face people see in the moon. The man in the moon. Sort of. But not really. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. First, let's talk about what we generally call the man in the moon. In the Northern Hemisphere, in the Western world, we generally see a face in the full moon or a face in profile in the crescent moon. That's just a simple example of pareidolia and apophenia at work. There's a face like shape, we see it. But what's interesting is that different people see different shapes in the moon. For example, the man in the moon is not the face that we imagine on the moon's surface. It refers to a much older story and to the apparent resemblance of part of the moon to a walking man carrying a bundle over his shoulders. That guy and the dog some people see walking beside him, that's the man in the moon. Now, there's lots of stories about how that man got there, at least in the European traditions. One old German story goes like this. One Sunday morning, an old man walked into the woods to cut some firewood. He cut a bundle of wood, slung it over his shoulders, and headed home. But on the way home, he met a stranger in fine clothes, dressed for church. The stranger saw the bundle on the old man's back and admonished him. ''Don't you know it's Sunday?'' the mysterious stranger said. ''Today is a day to remember God, not for working.'' The old man laughed and said, ''Sunday on Earth or Monday in Heaven, it's all the same to me.'' The stranger then said, ''If you don't value Sunday on Earth, you can carry your burden forever in Heaven as a warning to all those who forget the Sabbath.'' Then the stranger banished the man to the moon. Now this version of the story is tied to Christianity, obviously, but it's actually just one version of a story that seems to have existed for ages. In the Middle Ages, the man was banished to the moon for stealing rails from a neighbor's fence or for cutting sticks from a neighbor's hedgerow. The ancient Roman man on the moon was a sheep thief. The elements are the same, though. Old man confronted about an illicit practice involving a burden he's carrying and a mysteriously strange or divine figure with the power to banish people to the lunar surface. Speaking of people banished to celestial objects, let's end with another story of shapes on the moon. In this case, it's the myth of Chong Ye, the goddess in the moon. And it's related to the rabbit in the moon. See, in China, Korea, and Japan, when they look at the moon, they see the shape of a rabbit. And once you look up a picture of it, you can't unsee it yourself. They each have their own story for what the rabbit is doing up there. The Chinese jade rabbit makes medicine, while the Korean rabbit of the moon makes rice cakes. And the Japanese rabbit on the moon is actually a magical anime schoolgirl. Okay, not really. But anime superhero Sailor Moon's given name, Usagi Tsukino, is a play on the phrase Tsukino Usagi, which means rabbit of the moon. The rabbit isn't important to this story. We just wanted to mention it so that it wouldn't be a surprise when the moon rabbit turns up at the end. There are these immortals living in heaven named Chong A and Hu Yi. They were married. And Hu Yi was the best archer in the cosmos. So one day, the ten sons of the Jade Emperor, god of the universe, turned into ten sons. What we mean is that the Emperor's male offspring turned into flaming balls of nuclear fire. The emperor, unable to control his sons, asked the immortal archer to help get his sons under control. So Hu Yi took his bow and shot nine of the kids out of the sky. Dead. But he left one son to be the son. Which is why we have that one son. The emperor was a little miffed about Hu Yi's solution. And so he banished Chong and Hu Yi to earth and took away their immortality. Chang'e became depressed as a mortal, so Hu Yi undertook a quest to find a magical pill of immortality. And he did. Good for him. And the instructions indicated that a mortal only needed half a pill to become immortal. In fact, they specifically warned against overdosing. Hu Yi took the pill home and hid it. We guess he was holding on to it as an anniversary or birthday gift or something. And then he went out again. Chang'e found the pill, and with the precise comedic timing of an ancient myth or a modern sitcom, Hu Yi came home at that exact moment. Chang'e panicked and quickly swallowed the pill to hide it. And the double dose of immortality caused her not only to become immortal, but to become immortal on the moon. Fortunately, she wasn't lonely because the moon rabbit kept her company. now. That overdose may cause relocation to a nearby celestial body thing might seem to have come out of left field. But there is some precedent for failed attempts to achieve immortality to lead to banishment to the moon. For example, there's also a woodcutter named Wu Gang up there. He was punished for trying to achieve immortality. But he'll be paroled if he can cut down the tree that's growing up there. Unfortunately, the tree is immortal too. Every time he cuts it down, it just grows back point of all this is that it's easy and perfectly human to see shapes and images and patterns where none exist. And there's nothing wrong with it when it's just in good fun. Like when you're writing a podcast that connects seeing faces in the clouds to immortal moon trees by way of American poets and German neuroscientists. That's all in good fun. But none of that excuses any of you from trying to roll all the ones out of your dice so your character can never fumble. Remember that. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and the